You don't know this couple, but I want you to tell me in your mind how healthy you think their particular relationship is, as I describe it to you. They are a couple in which both individuals say they are committed to one another, and they have shared a lot of experiences where that is true, where there's agreement and love. But on the other hand, there is a particular area of the man's life that he keeps somewhat closed off from her. He thinks about it a lot, but it's obvious he doesn't have complete trust in her, and so he does not open himself up or give himself fully to her in that area. Is that a healthy relationship? Most of us would say no, or at least that they should address that area of their relationship. But what if I was talking about you or me, our relationship with God, withholding from Him? If God exists and He wants us to have a relationship with, uh, with Him, it would only make sense for us to trust Him completely with every aspect of our lives for our relationship to be at its best. And this could be said of any particular part that we are tempted to hold back from God, but it is certainly true of this, our money. This is the last in our theme of stewardship in 168, Rhythms That Lead to Life. And today I'm going to talk about money because it is a big part of our everyday and so a big part in following Jesus well. As a result, it should be no surprise that God talks about money a lot in the Bible. And I invite you to join with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 as we look at part of a lengthy scripture on giving which invites us into a paradigm of giving. A giving I would refer to as gospel generosity. We are picking up the conversation midstream between Paul and the church in Corinth. The apostle is intending to take up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem who need financial help, and he wants the Corinthian church to have their giving prepared for when he arrives. It's a remarkable writing on the subject of money and gives us an in-depth glimpse into Paul's fully developed theology around giving, which should shape our own. Two profound things Paul has already said in chapter 8 that is helpful for us to know. Financial giving is a grace. It's a gift that we can seek to excel at just like any other gift. And secondly, and so importantly, our giving is a clear reflection of the reality of our love for God, for others. If I say I love God, my bank account, my credit card statements should reveal that. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. I know for many the subject of money and giving is touchy in which we don't want to be manipulated or guilted, and this can be the case in some appeals. But for Paul, there's such a bigger picture and a better picture that is at stake for us in being a community of faith together. We are invited into a paradigm of abundance and blessing through giving. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I don't know what your picture of giving bountifully or abundantly is. In British Columbia for the year 2018, looking at all the people who filed the tax return, the average percentage of their total income that they gave to charity was 0.69%. You heard that right. According to the Fraser Institute, as adult citizens of this province, we gave less than 1% of our income away. 
Now that may not reflect you and your giving patterns in any way, but we at least can see that we swim in an environment that is more prone to a thinking of scarcity and withholding than abundance and generosity. And this is nothing new. It was the same for the Corinthians. And so Paul gets to the point about this using familiar agricultural terms. This is Abbotsford language. You will reap what you sow. There's a garden plot below my townhouse where I live. There's a few rows of wooden planter boxes like we have here at the church. And the previous year I did nothing. And when harvest time came, I got nothing. Should I have been surprised? Last year I did sow some seeds. I bought tomato seeds, zucchini, a little kale. I made the rows, I put the seeds in. But I left some space for some different seeds I would need to pick up and plant later, which I never got around to. Amazing how this happens. Where I planted, I had harvest. Where I didn't plant, again, nothing. Paul wants us to know there's a direct correlation of what we reap to what we have sown. If we are controlled by a scarcity mentality so that we sow in the same way, that is what we're going to experience. Scarcity. It is a simple principle which is not to live on its own. Prosperity gospel preachers, you know, they grab onto it to appeal to greed so that we, we give to get, but that's off. We need to hear the whole counsel of what Paul has to say here. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As I said, the Bible has a lot to say about what our perspective towards money should be. Our giving can and should be an intelligent and heartfelt act of generosity and worship to God. Even as we let God's word instruct us today, we don't want to let our giving be a result of manipulation in the moment, but a part of a thoughtful decision integral to our overall commitment to follow Jesus well. A couple of practical things here. First, we want to give space to think about who we are giving to. Early in my life, I grew into the conviction that my first fruits, that is the, the first part of my finances, should go to the local church that I and my family were part of. I mean, this is truly my spiritual family on the ground, and I want its ministries to flourish, so I've always started there and do by far my largest giving there. Second, beyond that, you want to give to organizations who align with your principles and passions and are good stewards of the money they are given. It takes time to be intentional and thoughtful to do that. Third, if you are married, it is also important to be in agreement about how much you are going to give and to whom. So it definitely warrants time and intentionality and conversation to arrive at a unified decision. And last, thoughts of scarcity will always want to creep in. It, it seldom feels like the right time to give. I'm a student. We just got married and have to outfit our place. We have young kids. Our kids are in private school. Our kids are in college. We want to travel now that the kids are gone. See, it seldom feels like it is the right time. And it wasn't for the Macedonian church, and Paul talks about here, but he praises them that they did. They did give, and he holds them as an example to be emulated. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It is best to make a decision about our giving based on sound theological thinking, being convinced from God's word, making a commitment, and then sticking to that. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the believers to set aside an amount on the first day of the week. If the people were regular and systematic, the collection for Jerusalem could be carried out without a lot of fanfare or emotional appeal. People would be doing it with a consistent obedience of care and concern for their brothers in Christ. For me, one of the best ways to live out this principle has been to set up a pre-authorized deposit through my bank account that worships God automatically every month with my set amount of giving as the base. It's harder for me to cave into scarcity in a moment of weakness, and I don't have to worry about being faithful with my giving when I am away. Abundance, intentionality, cheerfully, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Does cheerfulness and giving belong in the same sentence for you? The Macedonian church gave out of their poverty with joy. There are church services in other places of the world where they do their giving as part of their celebration of song and they dance up to the collection basket to drop in their gifts. As we see the big picture in giving, we can have joy in this. There's a great story in scripture about a tax collector named Zacchaeus who by occupation is a cheat. Rome delegated the collection of taxes to people like him who got rich by taking advantage of people and collecting more and then collect, uh, pocketing the difference. Read between the lines. Money is Zacchaeus' God. He's using others to get it. But that all changes when he meets Jesus. He is so enthralled with Jesus, he declares, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This was the maximum uh, declared by Jewish law. To which Jesus replied, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus didn't buy his way into the kingdom. His happy repentance and faith in Jesus is demonstrated by his finances. The story stands in stark contrast to one just a few verses earlier with a rich young ruler who couldn't loosen his ties to his wealth in order to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus is bent on giving and he is filled with joy. The rich young ruler holds it tight and he goes away sad. Which story do you want to be yours? It is more blessed to give than receive. Is giving to the Lord, to God, his purposes, something we should do? Absolutely. Let's, let, let's not let our giving be characterized by reluctance or obligation, but joy, for God loves a cheerful giver. This does not mean do this and God will love you. No, you, you can't earn his love. Like a parent, he already loves you. But like a parent who already loves their child, when that, children, when that child does something special that brings them pleasure, I think Paul wants us to know this, this just sure makes God think or say, oh, how I love you. Sometimes we make our walk with God so complicated. Paul has written elsewhere, find out what pleases the Lord and do it. Well, this is right here in front of us. God loves a cheerful giver, so give cheerfully. This demonstrates something good about how we see God. Few things come to mind like financial giving where God is so direct with his promises. Promising to provide for us when, when we trust him with our finances as we demonstrate that by giving some of it away for his purposes. This is faith. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Did you notice Paul's excessive use of superlatives? all, all, all. Paul is saying, you can trust God here. 
And I can tell you, I have found it to be so true on so many occasions as I, I have stepped out personally to give or make a financial decision based on generosity and faith, God has always come through. Paul draws from the Old Testament in Psalm 112. The picture that is given there is of a man living in right relationship with God, and he really trusts God, and he is characterized by generosity. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, and he is blessed. In, in Psalm 112, his children are mighty in the land. He has a good legacy. He's not afraid of bad news, but he's confident in God. And here Paul says, God will not only look after that giver's needs, but increase what he needs to give more. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. One of the few TV shows I've watched with any regularity over the years is Shark Tank. It's a simple concept. Entrepreneurs pitch their business idea to a group of five business sharks who are savvy investors with keen investment minds. And the entrepreneur knows that if they can convince a shark or sharks to partner with them, it will usually make a massive difference as to the acceleration of their business growth and profitability. More money. You want to have a shark on your side, but to do so, the entrepreneur has to be willing to give up at times a considerable percentage of their company. Why would they do that? Because it is far better to give up something to have a shark working with you than to go it on your own. I mean, can you lose with finances if God is in your corner? What picture makes more sense? Option one, I manage, I keep 100% of the money as if it's my own and I alone am responsible for success or failure. Or option two, I give a proportion away but God is now at work in my financial picture. There will be grace, the, the unmerited favor of God. I'll choose option two every time. It seems like the wise choice. Our giving for God, unto God, releases the activity of God. Think provision, think multiplication. God is a provider and a seed supplier. Not my promise, his. You give, and he not only takes care of you, bread for food, he multiplies what you have so that your giving can grow and increase the harvest of your righteousness. See, our giving is not an annoying bill to be paid. It's an investment in his kingdom with the return of seeing someone else able to minister, like the pastors at your church, missionaries sent into the world. It empowers people coming to Christ, someone's poverty under suffering alleviated, blankets for the cold, food for the hungry, these are results, fruit, a harvest of good things. And even though you wouldn't have anything to sow if it wasn't for God's grace in your life, this crop of goodness gets attributed to you, the harvest of your righteousness. But will you have the faith to release the seed? Will you let the money go? Will you not withhold but live out a relationship of trust here? Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Mark Vincent, in his book, A Christian View of Money, says the early church saw their earning potential as individuals, as gifts to giving to the believing community. Earning more allowed them to be more generous. 
In contrast, he says, in North American Christians tend to use extra income to accumulate and to consume instead of to increase generosity. Statistically, the greater the wage, the lower the percentage of income that gets donated to charity. In the words of Vincent, North Americans practice proportional selfishness rather than proportional giving. But you can see that giving to get so misses the mark. The giving Paul has in mind here is totally God-centered, that the seed we sow into Christian ministry and alleviation of hardship for others will ultimately produce thanksgiving to God. We want to care about that. Everything we have is given to us by God in the first place. And when we take the step to sow and over time it reaps the harvest, what's especially beautiful is that my giving done in the name of God results in God's name getting more glory. There are so many more things that God's churches and God's ministries could accomplish if his people would respond to his invitation to generosity. And that generosity would lead to more thanksgiving to God, more glory to God when our giving is done unto him. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. For the Corinthians to give the way he is describing here, it is to flow from the gospel they believe and confess. Underlying our paradigm for giving is the reality Paul states in chapter 8 and reminds them of here, the gospel which shows us so clearly how God gives. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. When it sinks in how much God has given to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, like everything else in our lives, our giving is bound to be affected. God has been lavish and abundant with his grace towards us at great cost to himself, the price of his son. And we're going to be penny pinchers? We're not going to pay a cost? Generosity is a clear reflection of God, his grace, his gospel. And sometimes people ask me, should we or are we supposed to tie the tenth as the Old Testament prescribed? For many, I would say, well, that would be a great place to start. But the question is not, how little can I give? That is, to keep it to 10%, on the net, of course, not the gross. The question is, how can my giving reflect the lavish generosity of God? How can it grow? How can the way I tip a server, pay a repairman, give to the church, sponsor a child, show that I really believe in the gospel, and that as God was faithful to give me his son, he will surely be faithful to give me food for bread and seed to sow. There's this story of giving in the Old Testament that I dream for the church. God has given Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle, but the people would have to provide their resources to build it through their free will offerings, not out of compulsion, offerings given freely, which they brought, and they brought, and they brought. In Exodus 36, it tells us every morning they kept bringing stuff, so finally Moses had to tell them to stop. It says, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Over the years, some of you have been so faithfully generous to see God build life-changing ministry through this church, locally, globally, making the day-to-day -day possible, providing for aid and assistance in our community, flood relief, now Ukraine's resettling, 
our Thanksgiving offering in which we have been able to touch and bless so many places in our city and beyond, from a fountain of water at Jubilee Park in Abbotsford to water wells in Africa, a legacy fund investing in leaders and projects locally and globally. This is part of our collective harvest of righteousness. Let's keep it going. Let's all participate and think about how could we grow? How could we excel further in this grace also? As you do, Paul says, you will reap bountifully. You will experience God's love and grace. You will have all sufficiency. You will abound in good works. You will leave a righteous legacy. You will be given multiplied seed to sow for more. Your needs will be looked after. You'll provide for others. God will get more thanksgiving. He will receive increased glory. Others will pray for you. Those you help will feel endeared to you. To summarize, you will be enriched in every way. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift.